You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Uh, this week we have, we're joined with by, uh, let's try that again. You know, I got to edit this too. Uh, all right. You don't really do that normally. What's going on? I have edit. Sometimes don't. Let's find out. All right. So this week we're joined by special guest, Beth Osick. Uh, Beth received a BS degree in computer engineering from Case Western, an MS and PhD degrees in electrical and computer engineering from the little school called Carnegie Mellon. And she is currently a staff engineer at Seagrid, focusing on autonomous vehicles. So when can we get our fully self-driving cars? <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, we're thrilled that you're here um, because you can correct everything that Fred's told us. <laughs> hey, I don't like that approach. I don't like that approach. No, I'll look at that. I'll keep him honest. I promise. I'll keep him honest. Okay, good. So, uh, Beth, we're told that you're, I mean, I, I could be wrong in this, but that you're kind of an expert in OEDR. Is that correct? That's correct. And so OEDR stands for Object and Event Detection and Recognition. And there's also a related concept called ODD, which is the Operational Design Domain. But what that means for us is, you know, will this car work in my neighborhood? Is it safe in my neighborhood? I've gotten those acronyms wrong a number of times in the show. Um, and we've discussed this before with like the GM cruise where it gets uh, a panic attack and stops working in San Francisco. It has an existential crisis with the Waymo vehicles and in Phoenix. Um, but I guess what, what I'd like to know from you, I mean, cause you have expertise in this field, uh, is how, how soon are these kind of automated vehicles coming on the road? I mean, we, the way the hype is that it's coming any day now. That's the that's probably the million dollar question. I think everyone wants to know when, um, and then it's always oh, it's going to be soon, and then a little bit later, and a little bit later. And I think the way to look at it is with the ODD, what you are are doing is trying to say what are the different scenarios that can occur in the location that I want to deploy this autonomous car in or other autonomous vehicle. So Beth, for, our list, for our listeners, Beth, what does the ODD encompass? So the ODD would encompass everything in the environment that you would need to know about. And it's very broad ranging. It could be everything, including uh, weather conditions. It involves what kinds of objects and actors, such as people and other vehicles are, are there, what kinds of traffic patterns you have, what kinds of road topology you have, essentially everything you need to know about the environment that would affect the vehicle that you're trying to deploy. So would a vehicle have just one ODD or if the vehicle's in, say, you know, the middle of rural Arizona versus New York City, uh, does, does the ODD change for the vehicle or how do those, how do those situations in, interact? That's correct. And what you would do is you use that as an input to your design process. And you would say, I want to deploy a vehicle in this kind of location. And so everything about that location that would affect the vehicle behavior, you have to know about that and program that into your vehicle. And from um, a deployment perspective, then you're free to choose, right? You can say, 
that a, a particular vehicle would work in a certain location. So take Arizona, right? You have a very sunny climate, wide roads, very flat. Um, you might focus on deploying there initially and then branch out to some more challenging locations. Like if you look at San Francisco, it's very hilly or Pittsburgh, you have snow, you know, now what? So when Anthony buys his self-driving vehicle, he lives in New York City um, and he tries to drive to Arizona. Is that going to be a problem for him? <laughs> it, it, it could be, depending on what the claims of the manufacturer. I'll say another, another way it shows up, if you look at uh, the driver assistance technology, some of those technologies are tuned for a specific kind of operating region. So if you look at automatic emergency braking, those systems are really tuned to do well for avoiding collisions that are the low speed, uh, you know, rear end kind of collisions. They do really well there. Um, they're not really intended so much to avoid like a T-bone or, or other kinds of collisions. And so it's a way that, you know, someone can focus and say this particular technology works great in this location. You'll see, you know, for example, some manufacturers are targeting highways. They advertise, okay, you can use this on the highway, but, you know, we don't handle rural roads yet things like that. And what it would mean is we're kind of, okay, so we're not at full autonomy yet, but what, you, what it would do is the car would say, I can drive in this uh, particular location. And if you're outside of this ODD, then you're going to have to take over as the human driver and drive it yourself. Okay. So that's like what GM and Ford do with their blue cruise and super cruise, right? Yep. That's right. Okay. How do those systems work? So I'm on a freeway that's mapped out and then I'm getting off the exit. Does it wake the driver up and be like, hey, you know, you've been playing Tetris for the last hour. <laughs> yeah. You have to take over the car. Because th that's not clear in any of their materials. I'm not sure because I haven't driven one. But yes, it would be the only ob be an obligation on the car manufacturer to somehow um, alert the driver like, hey, you have to take over again. And so sometimes, you know, for example, you could use like shaking the steering wheel or an indication on a heads up display, but something to let you know, like, hey, I, I don't know how to handle this. Okay, and then it's also the car would also have to be responsible for knowing when it's exiting that ODD. So the car would have to know, oh, I'm leaving the highway and I have to inform the driver that the driver needs to take over right now. Okay, so with these uh, these ODDs, so I'm leaving Manhattan and I go through an easy pass in Pennsylvania. Is it going to have to like download a new operating design domain for rural Pennsylvania, or they expect all of these cars to store every possible design domain around the country or where I would drive? Yeah, I would say there are a couple aspects of that. So one aspect is just the environmental conditions. And you would say effectively that the maybe the vehicle could operate in good weather, but it might not be able to handle a blizzard. And that would apply across, you know, any state where you would have good weather versus versus blizzard and then and then the car would you know, tell you to take over. Another way a, a manufacturer might go about it is to use a map based approach. And some manufacturers say, all right, we've mapped out these areas and we can operate, you know, autonomously in these particular areas. But if someone exits that area, then the driver would have to take over. Okay. <laughs> this seems crazy in my mind um, because I imagine something uh, will change rapidly. How is it going to wake a driver up? This this seems to be the the Achilles heel is, hey, we're driving the car. Now you are. <laughs> it is. It is. And that's a very important consideration that the car would need to give the driver enough advance notice. And that's um, 
that's difficult. <laughs> so if you have, you know, I mean, you've been driving and a rainstorm comes along in the car. It's not fair if the car just says, oh, you do it now. And that's why you see a lot of the you know, manufacturers are still saying, okay, you have to have your hands on the wheel all the time. You're ready to take over at any minute. Uh, but practically speaking, from a safety perspective, that's very hard to design that um, effectively because the driver will perhaps not pay as much as attention. Yeah, you know, the papers that I've read indicate that it takes a minimum of uh, five to ten seconds, even for a driver who's expecting the handover, for the driver to take actual effective control of the vehicle. Is that consistent with your understanding? That's right. Well, you can go a long way in five to 10 seconds at, you know, 60 miles an hour, 88 feet per second. That's, let's see, that, that, doing the math. Ooh, that's about four football fields, isn't it? That's, that's a long way. It's pretty um, far. And so the, the car would definitely have to provide you know, advanced yeah. notice. And that, that really is one of the tricky points of autonomous vehicles is handling that handover because of, it's, <laughs> it's right. I'm going to I'm going to take advantage of your presence here. I'm going to go a little bit geeky on my esteemed colleagues here. Oh, so yeah. uh, you you sent us a presentation. Thank you for that. That described some of the work that you've done. Some critical terms. You talked about a convolutional neural network. Is is that redundant? Are there other kinds of neural networks besides a convolutional neural network? Yes, there are different kinds of, of neural networks. And a convolutional neural network is used in particular for computer vision systems, uh, especially for camera systems. And that kind of neural network is patterned after the way humans see things. And the idea is that instead of having to program in a set of rules that say how to recognize an object, these particular neural networks scan uh, an image for features and then say if a certain certain kinds of features are detected it will make a prediction as to what kind of an object it is so for example cars will have different kinds of edges and and colors compared to a human would have different features so that leads me to two questions one is why is it believed that the way humans see things is the best way for self-driving vehicles to see things. How it evolved? Yeah, that's a great question. So how it evolved is that traditionally computer programs have been sets of rules and there were lots of attempts at trying to come up with a list of rules that would describe, you know, essentially how to recognize what an object is and that kind of line of thought just struggled. <laughs> and, and, and so if you look at, there was a separate line of computing that came along that said, hey, let's just pattern a computer after the human brain. And the way these algorithms are developed is that you set up a set of software nodes and you provide these with examples that are labeled by a human that would say, okay, here is this image here is a person object, here is a car object. And then the nodes have weights in between them and those weights are adjusted until the neural network is able to make a successful prediction um, of what kind of classification an object is based on the input. So basically with a convolutional neural network driving your vehicle, 
uh, the designers are actually crowdsourcing the perspective uh, of how to interpret the visual information into critical driving circumstances. Is that right? That, and, that, and that's, that's what the correct. OEDR is all about. And, yes, and the, and, the, and the labeling itself is frequently done um, by paid companies. So you would pay someone to go and annotate this data. Uh, and, and one one kind of, there are lots of interesting facets about the data. Uh, one interesting thing is that if you look at the data labeling companies, if you read the fine print, a lot of the data label companies, data labeling companies will use software to do kind of a pre-scan and label it and then say they have human review, which is an interesting point because if the software could already label it and you're using that to develop software that can label it, I mean, that there's kind of could be a contradiction there. So you have to really look at what is the human review process and how do you ensure that you have a high quality labeled data set. Is the human review process every time I submit a form on the internet and it says, identify all the traffic lights here? Identify yes, so some of that is crowdsourced every time you have to fill out a CAPTCHA. And actually, after so for our listeners, after listening to this podcast, you'll never look at CAPTCHAs the same because now you will go get a CAPTCHA and it will say, oh, find all of the you know crosswalks. And you will just have this eagle eye out and say, is there a small one back there? I see the big one, but is this one? Is this not one? Um, but yes, companies are also crowdsourcing the data that way. All right, I, I want to hijack the conversation for one more, in my mind, critical observation, which is that we think, I think personally, that the OEDR accuracy and the latency are the most important overarching parameters for self-driven vehicles or autonomous vehicles, whatever you want to call them, because you've got to have high, very high accuracy and you've got to have very low latency. High accuracy low latency run counter to each other. So how do you, how do you thread that needle? Yes. So I would say for the latency, this issue definitely comes up if you have a lot of objects in your scene. Um, for example, you might be doing something like a traffic sign detector. And if you've ever driven, you know, I've lived in Pittsburgh for a while. If you ever drive through Pittsburgh any time of the year, it's construction every time of the year and there are signs just everywhere. And the actual, the runtime of the algorithm does scale proportionally to the number of objects. And you know, traditionally in embedded systems, there's an analysis of timing where you would look at how long does it take to compute something and I need to do it every so often. And you would then size your um, processor capability and your uh, network bandwidth based on how often you need to process information and how much information you have. Mm. So I'm going to just explain to our listeners that latency is the time delay between an event of interest occurring, for example, a pedestrian walks into the highway, and the time it takes for the vehicle to respond to that new input. So that's latency. It's, a, it's just the delay between stimulation and response. And OEDR, to remind you, is object, event, detection, and response. That's an overarching parameter for how well is this machine learning and machine taught system actually understanding the scene that's being presented by the various sensors on the vehicle. Is that right, Beth? That's right. Sure. Okay, thank you. So now I'll turn it back to my esteemed colleagues after that brief geek dissertation and the uh, let you yeah. guys jump right in. 
That wasn't as geeky as you normally get at times. I'm <laughs> fully cognizant right now. I didn't have any urge to nap, change the channel or anything. I'm getting older. It's it's slower. Uh, okay, so I, uh, maybe I'm cynical. Normally, I'm the optimist in the show, but I don't imagine, you know, full self-driving is going to happen anytime soon. I mean, so there's... Uh, there's situations, obviously, I think, where this makes a lot more sense to have automated vehicles like uh, forklifts in a factory, for example. Like, where where is this actually being deployed um, in a useful setting, I guess? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, factory automation is a big one, especially with uh, the labor the labor market as it is today because it's very challenging to find workers. And that's also a place where you can uh, cooperate with the humans in that the uh, automated robot could take over part of the job and then the human might complete the second part of the job. That's definitely one area. And I've seen uh, that you see, I guess, the vehicle manufacturers, some of them are stepping back a bit and saying, well, we're just going to focus on driver assist technologies because effectively they're, you know, that's what we've got now, you know, it's what the, 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 the autonomous vehicles are sort of able to do at this point and try to sell, you know, safety features that way. Um, and there are some that are looking at just kind of restricted areas. So there was a company that was, I remember there was one that was doing autonomous vehicles in retirement communities. And there you have a very, you know, wide roads, not a lot of traffic. Uh, that would be a, a kind of a substantially easier ODD to deploy in. We saw one that was automated vehicles around, was it JFK or LaGuardia? Um, shuttles going around. And I imagine that they could take advantage of, okay, this is a well-mapped out area that we know, and the infrastructure can start communicating with this vehicle. So, and say, hey, I, if some object's moved on it, that object can mm -hmm. tell the vehicle, hey, I've moved. And I know we've talked about that uh, V2X, right? Did I get it? V2X? Yeah. You got it. Structure. So, that's what we need on the highways for this to work. Anthony Probably. can be trained. I like that. That's good I news. Know. Look at that. I didn't even do any work ahead of time. I'm just half awake still. Well, so, you know, another aspect of where these robots will come out first is uh, what happens if the robot isn't able to process the situation? And for autonomous road vehicles, that's very challenging, as you mentioned, because you have to go and hand control back to the driver. There are a lot of situations like if you are in a factory or maybe robots in hospitals, retail settings, if there's a problem, then a lot of times the robot is able to just stop and then wait for human assistance or try to restart later. That's much more difficult if you have an autonomous vehicle driving down the roadway. Yeah. There you have to have a definite safety maneuver or human takeover. Right, because we just saw, it was a, I think it was in Bloomberg yesterday about Apple's self-driving car because you know that's the industry you want to get into as a software and hardware manufacturer. Let's build cars. Um, that they've delayed their self-driving car, not because they've realized this is a dumb idea, um, but they've scaled it back from a car with no steering wheels and pedals to one that has full self-driving on freeways by 2026. The report added that the company plans to develop a vehicle that lets drivers conduct other tasks on a freeway and be alerted with, uh, be alerted with ample time to switch over to manual control. So has Apple <laughs> managed to predict the future? Is that I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I don't, <laughs> Again, that handover is very tough and probably where things will go down if something goes down. <laughs> right. I mean, because we've just seen it with, with GM Cruise in, in San Francisco where the cars that are just like, I don't want to drive anymore and they give up. 
it could be legalized marijuana. I don't know why they just, they give up on life. <laughs> so, and we don't know who to hand the tickets to. So, Is there a marijuana algorithm, I wonder? There must be something you can put into your computer to, you know, get some verisimilitude with the marijuana experience. I don't know. Well, that's an aside. I don't really I'm sorry. I'm not really <laughs> expecting an answer. Huh? Hey, I do have an unfair question to ask you, though. Um, how can you compare the efficiency and and uh, capabilities of a neural network with a biological neural network? You know, I'm thinking of a gray parrot, which has a brain about the size of a walnut, which can solve very complex problems and can intuit the answers to those and, you know, do, do a lot of very sophisticated things. My brain is somewhat larger than a gray parrot. I'm not sure I've got any more capability, but yours certainly has got a lot more. But how do you compare that with what can be done mechanically and, you know, just in terms of the layout of a neural network? How do the... How, how is it possible to compare those capabilities and potentials? Do you know? Is that sure? So I, I can talk about how these networks are tested, and also a bit about the different pieces in the autonomous software pipeline. Uh, so the first one is perception, and this would deal with detecting first of all, is the space occupied, and then secondly, recognizing what kinds of objects are in the space. Is it a person? A, a car or or what have you. And how that classification is tested is you would assemble uh, a set of examples and you would have some as your training set and you would reserve some as your test set and then you would train up your neural network and then test it on your test set and see how many uh, objects in the, in the test set were properly recognized. Now, as you can imagine, then the you get an accuracy number out, but that accuracy depends highly on what's in your test set. And so if you've forgotten something in your test set, obviously your network is not going to recognize it. And a lot of the, the work today is in really on the human side of thinking of different situations. And if you look at the safety standards like um, UL4600 or uh, safety of the intended functionality, they talk a lot about how do you go about thinking of all these situations and, and making sure you uh, covered them? And also if you have some that occur uh, while you're driving, either an incident or you could also be looking out for near misses, there are techniques in anomaly detection to say, hey, there's something strange going on here. You should really record this data and then use it. Take a look at it and perhaps you want to add this to your training set. That's the perception piece. Then there's also uh, the second piece after that is trajectory prediction. Now that you know what kind of objects are out there, the car has to decide where is this object going to go. And in particular, you know, for humans, this becomes very interesting because you might be deciding, here's a human standing on a corner. Is this human going to cross the street or not? That's very important to know. Um, there's that piece. And then you would, again, kind of have a test set where you would look at here are some uh, different objects, and did this object go the way I thought it would? You also look at cases where you uh, ascribe the wrong trajectory to an object, so you can confuse some objects sometimes. If you have a big crowd of people, and you're trying to track all the people in there and see which way each person would go, one thing that could happen is that you might mistake person A for person B if they're walking past each other, and you might make a wrong trajectory prediction. 
And then the piece after that is the planner, where that now that you've got all of these uh, objects and you know where they're going, the car has to plan or the autonomous vehicle has to plan a path through the space. And these are often tested by generating a lot of scenarios. So there are scenario description languages and you, you know, throw a whole bunch of scenarios at your software and see, you know, did any simulated collision occur? And if so, then you would have to go and adjust your, your planner. And all that's done in just no time. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the stuff. So you've got teams of people working on all these things. And then to throw in another one, if you, if you are, you know, for companies that are leveraging maps, uh, you have to look at, is the map accurate? Uh, so that can help uh, in some ways, but then if you're driving along and now the whole road's under construction and you've got lanes going different directions, the car has to recognize that the map is no longer accurate. Hmm, that sounds like a big push. And there's even more. I mean, I can keep going. I don't know how much. <laughs> yeah, well, your sensors yeah. too. I mean, you've got information coming down your sensors and you, know, you have to look at, do you trust it? Or is there, could there be a problem? Like if your sensors, you know, now I, if your sensors get covered with snow, so say your camera gets covered with snow, now you can't see out of it. The computer system has to recognize that and, right. and handle it. That's right. one thing I always wonder about these, these vehicles is, can the average human being even maintain an autonomous vehicle given our struggles to do things like change our wipers on time and stuff like that? It seems a little dangerous right. to have Right, to have that's an excellent point. And I, you know, I, I think one era these companies about to consider in the future is, you know, probably all of you know or have experienced driving along in a car and something goes wrong with it, like you blow a tire or some other problem. And that also would have to be in a fully autonomous vehicle. That would have to be programmed into the software to recognize all of these failure cases and somehow handle that. Yeah, I had an interesting situation yesterday. I I have a Subaru, <laughs> and there was a storm coming. We we're expecting three days of rain, and all of a sudden, I couldn't close my passenger side window. And uh, oh no! <laughs> and, and so I had to kind of screamed down to my local car repair place and, uh, you know, and have them take a look at it. And of course, happily, they fixed it, no problem. But it just occurred to me as I was in the middle of that is that there are just innumerable things that can go wrong with a vehicle that can affect the safety or comfort of people inside the vehicle that are simply imponderable and, and you know, cannot be decisively included in any design because you, you you know it's just there's just so remote that you never think they're going to happen but they do happen you know and 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 so the question is you know is this a kind of monotonic relationship between unknown defects and the capability of the of the driving system like if if you have a 50% degradation in your camera dirt on it something like that does that mean you've got a 50% degradation in potential safety or is, uh, you know, how do you, how do you look at the partial degradation of the sensors or some effector that's in your OEDR system and its impact on the overall safety of the passengers or, or the pedestrians or other vulnerable road users? Is there some way of doing that or is that still the, the gray frontier that we're trying to find some light in? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. I'll, I'll break that down into two questions. And the first one, as you mentioned, is 
there are so many things that can go wrong. How can someone think of all these things that go wrong? And if you look at, there, there are whole sets of safety standards that um, address different areas of the vehicle, covering the hardware and the software and, and those things. And there are techniques in there where you would effectively go through, for example, if you're looking at hardware failures, you would go through all of your components and say, here's this piece of hardware. Here's how it could fail. If you're looking at the signal coming out of it, you might say, here's the signal. What if it's missing? What if it's delayed? What if it's applied too long? And you go through all of these and think of what the consequence might be and then does design, if you need to, what's called a, a mitigation, which would say, okay, if this, if this particular failure causes a risk that's too high, then there, the system needs to have some way of uh, mitigating that risk, mm-hmm. either by maybe you would introduce some additional, you would introduce some additional software that would say, all right, if this is missing, I'll, I'll estimate this particular signal value some other way, and I have to design that piece of software. That's one way to do it. Or maybe you would say, I need a redundant component. That could be another kind of mitigation. And that's your, yep, go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say to introduce another confusing acronym, there's something called the FMECA, which is failure modes and effects criticality analysis, which I think is what you're alluding to. And, And it would be important for every manufacturer to conduct an FMECA associated with their self-driving system, but there's no requirement to do that. And uh, and I guess that that's left up to the discretion of the manufacturer. Is that right? Uh, that's my understanding on both fronts. That yes, you know, that, it's a, definitely a good idea to do that. And I, I don't know that there's any regulation saying that you have to. I can tell you from past experience, there's no regulations on anything related to cars. They tell me that every week and yet they, I keep getting into my car. I don't know why. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's fascinating with all the sensors failing and whatnot. I know my wife's cell phone camera, every time she tries to take a picture, it always tells her, you have to clean your lens. It's like, I'm sure they figured that out, but with, you know, radar systems and LIDAR systems, it's... Uh, well, again, Michael, marital, marital disputes were the province of click and clack in the other show, but we're... <laughs> We're not click and clack. We're at best clatter and clunk. So I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> and we again, can Fred, I'm Anthony. Explain the scope that way. Blue shirt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we digress a lot, Beth. It's all I right. apologize. It's all right. Um, so w- where do you see kind of the the next big breakthrough on this stuff, or where is it just going to be? You think more of improving automatic emergency braking in these things, or is it because uh, look the hype is the hey full self-driving vehicle which is is not going to happen this week but is that more of just the marketing business people pushing that like from from an engineer's perspective like what are you excited about right so i have to remind myself where autonomous vehicles are in the hype cycle uh i feel like it's kind of moving down into that trough of disillusionment at the moment but i it's at the, the point where it's a lot of hard work uh, and and it just takes the work to get through it. Um, like I just mentioned, safety analysis and the safety analysis is a lot of uh, detailed work where you're, you're effectively going through all of these components in your system and trying to think about what could go wrong and then what what needs to be done to avoid any uh, bad consequences of that. Uh, I think what I'm excited about is it'll be 
Well, I, I personally also like driver assistance technology. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I, you know, cars don't necessarily have to drive themselves. Uh, to benefit me, I love looking at safety features. <laughs> so I'm happy that when I'm looking at buying a new vehicle, I'm definitely looking at what safety features are available and, and how could that help me out. Um, and then back to the ODD question, I think companies will have success at, you know, these, if they limit their, their autonomous operation to a, a really well-known area that they feel they can have, a, you know, attain a lot of control in, I think that's where the success will be, just kind of narrowing down that scope. But that's extremely difficult for autonomous road vehicles. You know, anything can happen. You can't control the weather. You can't, you know, there's a lot of things that are out of your control. Um, have you yeah. seen any particular regulatory or rulemaking process that you, you think is promising? Any particular avenue people might go down that's better than some other avenue or as, as Anthony's fond of reminding us, uh, no avenue at all? Oh, I would say the United States is difficult because regulations tend to happen in retrospect, just the way that the government has authority. Um, for example, if you look at safety technology, uh, the safety technology that has become mandatory has become that way because of analysis of it's deployed in the marketplace first, and then there's an analysis that the benefit you know, largely outweighs the cost, and then it becomes sort of mandatory later. But there, there's, you know, the government doesn't have a lot of, opportunity is the wrong word, but I'd say legislative authority right now to restrict a lot of these technologies. But as a, for, for our listeners, uh, what you can do as a citizen is definitely go to your representatives and say, how is this safe, you know, in my neighborhood? The um, states can definitely, they sort of regulate things through the driver now because you can, the states are allowed to place regulations on the drivers. So there are regulations for safety drivers. Um, NHTSA also has a webpage um, called the Voluntary Safety Self-Assessment or VSSA. Uh, and that's one, that's one avenue where at least, you, you know, if you see cars driving in your neighborhood, you can go and say, hey, did they have a VSSA? What's in this VSSA? Now that's still voluntary. Uh, yeah. But hopefully peer pressure, I mean, peer pressure maybe could <laughs> like. And they also have a, an, an AV test database, I believe, that points out the geographic locations where these folks are um, operating. Um, but that's also completely voluntary as to whether they report yes. their activities. So um, there's way too much voluntary out there for us. And, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, NHTSA's struggles generally to make rules on technology that's been out for a long time, like right now, yes. pushing them for a decade to get rear seat belt reminder warnings into vehicles that have been in the front seats for decades now, right? And right. they're yeah. cheap, they're available, they should have had a rule out 10 years ago when it was mandated by Congress, but they just moved so slow on that. And when you see that, it really just makes me wonder if they're in any way capable of addressing the complexities of autonomous vehicles. Um, I mean, it seems to me like in some respects, the industry kind of has them where they want them on this voluntary thing because they're not willing to regulate some of this stuff. And so the industry's like, well, we'll just put it out and sell it as a as an option for 10 years, make a lot of money, and then we'll put it in all our cars. Um, oh, and it, that's and it true. sets safety back uh, that way. Yeah. yeah. 
I should hear if anything. I was really interested in this idea of data recording um, in a way that, because what we've seen recently in NHTSA, NHTSA conducted, say, a sudden acceleration investigation of a manufacturer who provides them with a set of data that says everybody misapplied the pedal. You know, this was the driver's fault in every case. And the data that was submitted to NHTSA, we obviously haven't seen, but we think it's probably low level like EDR data when in fact this manufacturer is collecting hundreds or thousands of other fields of data that we don't necessarily think have been submitted or properly vetted by the agency at this point. And, you know, it, it just raised the, that raised the question when I saw, you know, a, a note about computer recording. You know, what kinds of data are needed? What you know? What what in in this case where you 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 see the basic EDR data that says one thing, but the real story may be a lot more complex and contained in other data collecting areas of the vehicle. Um, what 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 could be done there to ensure that you know first maybe manufacturers are turning over the proper data that's needed for enforcement efforts by the government, um, and and also you know, building data sets that are that large is a great thing. And how can those be used, you know, to advance safety? Right. So the computer recording is an excellent question because you see that come up in these sudden acceleration cases or sudden braking cases. And what the computer is recording is probably the data from a sensor. So you might have a throttle position sensor or a brake position sensor. And there's a very very valid question of is that well was the sensor wrong i mean the sensor right. might have been wrong and now the computer is you know recording the wrong information and depending on how the software is designed potentially also acting on a piece of wrong information and i would encourage i would encourage manufacturers to submit all the data that they have and that's kind of right. rich <laughs> yeah um <laughs> right but any piece of data that you have and and for those cases those are those are hard because you almost would need a video camera right on the person's foot to see what were they doing? But maybe you would also, maybe you could grab, um, you know, other surveillance camera data around the vehicle if it's available to see what the brake lights were doing, what other things were doing. You've seen also cases where you see, oh, sudden acceleration and the driver wasn't braking is what the computer recorded. But then when you go to the, the incident scene, you see brake skid marks for, you know. Right decent numbers of meters before the eventual collision. So something wasn't adding up there. If all of the data were available publicly, is there anybody who is uh, around who could actually use all that data? Or, you know, would, would they just be throwing it open and people would just don't have the capacity to do it? I mean, everybody I know who's working is busy doing what they're doing. So if somebody, you know, backs up a dump truck and says, okay, here's the data, beep, 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 and just dumps it on you, what are you going to do with it? I think how it would play out is if there is an accident, then the legal system would be definitely be interested in seeing that data. And if a manufacturer is saying, oh, this was a you know sudden acceleration case, the driver had their foot on the on the gas pedal, and the driver saying, no, no, I didn't, if that went to court, definitely there would be, you know, someone to look at that data for that particular case. Now, in general, you know, you're right, everyone's busy. <laughs> and there's a lot of cases where there's a lot of data out there and people don't have time no, to look at no. it. Okay, so time for surveillance cameras aimed at the driver's feet from now That's on. That's right, That's right. I'm on board with that. <laughs> uh, so if you thought building an automated vehicle was hard, try building a regular car 
Uh, let's go on a recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. NHTSA is investigating whether 1.7 million SUVs made by Honda should be recalled after receiving several reports of vehicles losing power at high speeds. Uh, this is they're investigating whether they should do this or not. So this is the, the case where I think, Michael, you've mentioned this before. People driving down the highway full speed and the car is just like, I'm not a car anymore. I'm a coaster. Like, <laughs> how is this happening? Well, we don't know yet. That's why NHTSA is investigating it. But, um, you know, as we've spoken many times before about loss of power incidents, um, they can put drivers in serious danger. They're either, you know, even just being stalled on the side of the road in the in the shoulder is dangerous enough. I mean, you see how many police cars are hit and, and other emergency responders every year by folks who first somehow don't see them with flashing lights on the shoulder. And when you're talking about your car, which doesn't have those flashing lights, you're even less conspicuous. And if you stall in the middle of the road, the the risk of some type of incident or crash goes up. And, you know, that's why NHTSA has long uh, forced manufacturers with loss of power incidents to recall the vehicle. So they're looking into it. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the problem is. And um, Honda has generally over the years been somewhat better behaved than some of the other manufacturers so i'm, I'm interested to see you know i'm sure they're cooperating fully here um could, and, it, could it be yeah. that i i remember as a as a story i heard growing up my older brother he's in the passenger seat he must have been like eight years old driving along and he's just bopping his head and just reached over and turned the car off could it be just a whole bunch of little kids just reaching turn the key off I don't think so. I think uh, that uh, that's been since GM ignition problem that that that's probably been designed out of the possibilities. But um, I'm not sure how the Honda keys work. I mean, you know, these could be push buttons, probably. So how what are you, what does your brother do now for a living, Anthony? I'm I'm curious. Well, this is you know 50 years later. So uh, he he does sales. So he doesn't yeah, do well, auto testing. So it turns it, different kind of keys. All right, it, it tracks. Um, okay. So, uh, Kia, this is, uh, this is bad. This is a uh, Kia side curtain airbags twisted. Right. Uh, Kia and engineers found this out, um, with through mitigation compliance tests about three weeks ago. And so the bags were just not packaged properly. I mean, I know it's complex wrapping these bags. It's like a very tight origami type puzzle. Um, yeah. And these are, these are curtain bags and I believe they, drop down vertically and so i don't know if they're rolled up or what but what i was imagining was that one of the one of the attachment points was turned around and attached or turned all the way around so it could still be attached so the bag was twisted so that when it drops um it doesn't drop because it's hung up on one side and it's it's basically been um had its folding uh compromised by the twist and the attachment but uh, you know they didn't provide any uh diagrams there but you know the, the the side curtain airbags are really important to reduce like head neck shoulder trauma and also they've become a really important part of ejection mitigation um for folks who you know may have had a seat belt failure or aren't wearing a seat belt um to prevent them from being ejected from the vehicle and, and increasing the potential for for death or injury so it's really important that they get those right and it's a little concerning that you know airbags are making out of the factory that are improperly installed 
um, given a lot of the uh, safety concerns around airbag, improper airbag deployments over the last few years. This sounds like another one of those uh, late Friday afternoon in the factory problems. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, another hybrid loss of power. Let's see. Jeep Wrangler uh, potentially recalling 62, over 62,000 vehicles. Some uh, 2021, 2023, my Jeep Wrangler 4XE. Who names these vehicles? Uh, their plug-in hybrid electric uh, vehicle um, will lose, well, the engine will shut down caused by diagnostic diagnostic reactions to faults caused by loss of communications. Is this another entertainment system breaking the car? No, it's not another entertainment system. Uh, um, that's, you know, that's another loss of power recall. So that's means... They're doing their job there. It doesn't look like they figured out what the problem is yet. Um, so it may be a while before owners see a fix come their way. The the kind of the interesting thing about that recall is that um, it looks a lot like, you know, th that's a weird one. It looks a lot. It's not your typical loss of power. Where, you know, you might have a fuel pump failure or some type of electrical issue. The diagnostics seem to have a low level existential crisis like we saw in the cruise vehicles in San Francisco in some way. Um, it can't interpret its signals, and so it shuts down, um, which is you know a, a unique type of event that I don't think I've run across before. Well, coming soon to a car near you. Uh, Nissan Rogue water intrusion. So we talked about something like this last week where if you spilled your water bottle in the back seat, it went right over one of the control modules, and the control model would fry. Uh, this is something similar where it's electrical issues and fire saltwater intrusion by a driver's feet leads to corrosion because, you know, that's a very rare case where you're outside walking in the snow, your boots are covered in snow and you get in to drive your car, that snow melts. Uh, so this is for Nissan Rogues. Um, it says my 2017 Nissan Rogue is MY a some sort of NHTSA acronym mm. I don't know about or model year model year model year uh look at that I could have done that math um this is a both based on production records this issue is unique to the model and dates of manufacture at the Smyrna plant listed above um so yeah this is from 2016 to 2017 you know, approximately 0.01% uh vehicles contain the defect but it doesn't actually list the total number of vehicles as far as I can tell yeah, and if it's a, um, you know, this is one of those issues that takes time to develop because it's related to corrosion. And in this case, it looks like saltwater corrosion, which is why we saw the problem start. You know, we the the folks up in Canada were the ones who first looked into this issue. And it's one of those problems that starts north and kind of migrates south due to the heavier snows and the more salt they have on the roads, more people getting it out of their car with salty snow on their feet, um, makes this corrosion happen quicker. And so we saw, saw more events in Canada um, before we did down in the United States, which is not normally the way we see recalls. You know, usually we see uh, the United States, a recall happen in the United States and then Canada picks it up from there. So um, there's been a number in the last few years that are like this kind of a um, generally related to corrosion or to other conditions like extreme cold uh, that, that that we'll see the safety issues crop up first in Canada. Well, well, do we need to build? Do we need to build another wall to keep these defects from flowing from Canada into the United States? <laughs> I well, think it would be just as effective. Is this going to be a political issue? <laughs> these were built in Smyrna, Tennessee, so I think we have to build a wall around Smyrna, Tennessee. Um, <laughs> I know there's an idea. 
Okay. Uh, our last recall, Winnebago cabinet handle handles. How to cut yourself before even getting the knife out. Potentially 6,553 vehicles. Um, all Winnebago travel trailers, travel trailers built with suspect drawer handles. Um, let's see. Their micro mini, their mini, their Winnebago hike. Exterior corners of cabinet door handles are sharp, <laughs> which can cause personal injury. Um, I just threw that one in because <laughs> as a cook, I, I that really, you know, that, that gives me the, ugh. you know, and I've cut my tip of my finger off before cooking and sharp cabinet handles just sound, ouch, that gave me the willies. <laughs> and, and Fred just gave us a symbol that he's missing a finger. Um, Beth, what kind of car do you have? We can look it up using the autosafety.org's vehicle safety check and let you know if you have any problems with it. Unless oh, excellent. Well, well, thanks for the stories because I'm, I'm thinking of how my son puts away his laundry and he's definitely not ready to be an airbag packer anytime soon. <laughs> 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 no, I, have a, I have a Ford Escape and a Ford Fusion. Oh, uh, they're already just, just recall them. What, what year? Actually, the, well, the Escape we just got, it's a plug-in hybrid. Which huh? actually, there was just a, a recall. There was just the, a recall. There was just season. one. I, when I, you know, my mom is usually on the ball with the recalls. She's, she realizes, she's like, text me. It's like, Pat, there was a recall. Does this apply to your car? So fortunately, that one didn't. But I do have a, a, a recall a, a recall source. But this is How a is great the, source uh, of information fusion... for everybody. Because it's hard to look them all up, you know, if you, if you happen to miss it. So thanks for providing this recall report to everyone. Yeah. Is the um, Fusion's transmission holding up well? We know there have been some issues with those, but I'm not sure if your model year would have been affected. Oh, uh, what's that right now? That one's older. It must be a 20, it's 2015. Yeah, that's in, that's right in the, right in the time period. If you have any weird transmission faults, let us know. <laughs> I'll let you know. But at that point, I guess that car, if, it, if it's got a problem, then it's, it's probably time for it to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I'm looking at recalls for the 2022 Ford Escape. Um, engine and engine cooling problems, structure and related to the bumpers. Ah, uh, let's see. Ford Motor is re recalling certain Escapes, Lincoln Corsairs, and Maverick vehicles equipped with HEV or uh, plug-in hybrid engines. Uh, in the event of engine failure, engine oil and fuel vapor may be released into the engine compartment and mm. accumulate near ignition sources such as hot engine. Uh, look. These are cars they've been for a right? long time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, when I see things like this, it makes me think, yeah, automated vehicles driven by software. Sure, that's no problem. I mean, we come across recalls where it's like they forgot to tighten a bolt. <laughs> like, it's not that, oh, it, maybe somebody left off a semicolon in this algorithm here. Um, yeah, that's what we have for uh, for recall roundup. Oh, and then then finally we have uh, this week in auto safety, which is our on again, off again segment. Uh, and I'm just reading this one right now. Ever notice the red stripe type tape on semi trailers? No, I have not. Oh, of course you've not, because it's inconspicuous. Because no, 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 you're messing this all up. I'm Anthony. totally messing this up. I've See, never. What you've you never about? been behind a tractor trailer and seen that. It's kind of like candy cane striped red tape. That goes All around, around the entire back yeah, door. And it's, it'll right. be on the sides. And also you'll see right. reflectors that are there. So that was put into place, I believe it was 30 years ago. This week, um, so when you do see those, it's called uh, conspicuity tape. Uh, you'll see it on the internet, sold as DOT conspicuity tape. Um, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration mandated that. 
30 years ago this week and that you know if you can imagine what it's like now driving next to one of those trailers with all the lights and reflections on it versus 30 years ago um you know you could be in the lane look over and there would not be anything you know to your right to catch your eye and let you know that there is a trailer there and you know that was a cause of crashes and so the conspicuity tape definitely helps and it probably helps vehicles recognize trailers um using some of the oedr we've been talking about today and how much was this little safety addition i mean how much could this tape cost pennies well it's tape and reflectors I, they got to be cheaper than you know all the computers that are going in vehicles now <laughs> so dimes dimes mm -hmm. look yeah. a, a, oh, a little safety fix just sticky question Ah, Fred's will be performing at Chuckles in Burbank next week. <laughs> uh, oh, that's how they fix that bumper recall. They just hand you a roll of that, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that and a pack of chewing gum. Yep, they're on a roll. All right, I think we've uh, wasted our, our listeners' time of, of for another week. Uh, we definitely want to thank our special guest, Beth Osick, who gave us some more insight in, uh, in OEDR and ODD, uh, and some other acronyms that I can't remember. No, those are the two acronyms you covered. Uh, that was incredibly helpful. Um, big thank you for coming and, and, and educating us, well, me and Michael, I think Fred was pretty much up to speed, uh, on most of this stuff. Um, so Please thank you back some other time. <laughs> thank you. Bro. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, just one final thought. Um, Michael, tell me about the virtues of Florence, Alabama. Florence, Alabama is a, uh, well, you know, I don't know that much about Florence, Alabama to tell you the truth, Fred. I know that it's in Alabama. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, but I believe that it, it's, you know, it's about the size of my hometown in Mississippi. Uh, probably around 35, 40,000 people. Well, you're right. Uh, Florence, Alabama is a very picturesque town. It's on the Tennessee River and Muscle Shoals area. Uh, a lot of industrial activity, a lot of recreational activity. And uh, it is the town in Alabama that is closest to the annual toll of deaths on American highways. So the population is about 40,000. And Today is the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941. And that attack, uh, 2,403 U.S. personnel, including 68 civilians, uh, were killed. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me that the number of people who are killed annually in the United States is, is a huge number. It's, it's 42,000 people last year. And it's about 16 or 17 times the number of people who were killed at Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor launched the United States into World War II. It was unacceptable to the United States that an entity would kill thousands of Americans and, and not suffer, you know, all of, all of the injury that it took to vanquish Japan and Germany in World War II. The United States launched innumerable campaigns around the world to take care of that threat. Yet, if you were to, you know, and if you were to look at Florence, Alabama, and some entity came in and killed every single person in Florence, Alabama, um, there would be a, 
I can only imagine, a worldwide devastating response from the United States to that affront. Yet, if 40,000 people are killed every year, if the entire population of Florence, Alabama were killed by automobile accidents and collisions and drunk drivers, uh, nothing happens. And every year it's the same. Towns the size of Florence, Alabama are the equivalent of just completely wiped out by this machinery that we have on our highways and the government does nothing. Uh, in my mind, this is unacceptable. And I think that the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack is a, is a great time to look at the comparison between the military response to the affront that happened on that day and the complete lack of response from the U.S. government to this, this slaughter that's happening on the U.S. highways. Go look at Florence, Alabama. Look at all the virtues it's got and think of what we would do if all that disappeared by some, by some malign force. So thank you. I, I leave you with a cheerful thought. Thank you, Beth, and thank you, Michael, and uh, Anthony. And, That's your and name. I think what Fred's saying there succinctly is we need to raise NHTSA's budget. Or give them some teeth to actually enforce some things. Can you buy those? Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Regulatory teeth. I need to find out where they sell them. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.